Good morning. It's a real joy to see those of you here in the sanctuary, and thank you to those of you joining us online to worship with us. Well, if you're hearing me today on January 17th, I have good news for you. You've now pretty well cleared 2020. You survived. Well done. Now, even in the midst of this kind of tumultuous year, things were were very different. We had an extended period of time where we weren't gathered together, and it was very strange and odd. But now we've kind of moved to a place where things aren't perfect. We're still in the middle of some things, but we're trying to move forward together. And we're back here in the church building on Sunday mornings. And in the time we had together, I felt it was important to finish hearing from Jesus and what he has to say to us in the Sermon on the Mount. But now we can really appreciate the fact that we're here. We've had a, a few years of some interesting transition, but now it's time to move forward, kind of the start of something new and really try to figure out what's next for us. We're back, we're in the church, we're we're together. Many of us here, I know some are still online, but we're together, moving forward, what is going to happen next? Now, maybe you're here today or you're watching online and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Christ, or maybe you're not a part of this particular church, but you've still had to make some transitions in your life, and hopefully your life has come back to some type of at least a, a new normal, And you're probably asking yourself, well, what's next? What is coming up moving forward? And as we thought about that, and I was considering what portion of God's word to look at, uh, I was kind of drawn to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And the reason I was there is because I thought about the situation that's happening in the books. It seemed remarkably similar to what we're going through. And I hope you'll see why as we begin this study today. I think the major reason why is these books are about God's people, the Israelites. They were in exile, away from their place of worship. They were away for 70 years. But these books, Ezra and Nehemiah, are about God's people coming back to the place where they worship God and learning, rediscovering how they can worship God in different circumstances, but back in their land and where they were used to. The reason we're doing these two books is because in the Hebrew, these are actually one book in the Hebrew Bible, the Greek and then the Latin split it into two, but it's really one book, or think of it as two parts of the same story. And when the people get back to the promised land, they're going to experience some disappointment because things aren't how they used to be before. Things aren't exactly the same, but they'll still see how God is working, even in this new circumstance. And they'll see how God raises up spiritual leaders to lead his people during this time. And so those are some of the reasons why I thought that this study kind of connects to where we are now. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying up here proclaiming victory over COVID. COVID's over and done. We'll never have to worry about it again. Obviously, most of us are wearing masks or, or we, they're trying to spread out. That There's things that have changed that are different. And there are members of the church that have or are or will experience the disease or its impact. The community as a whole is still fighting. So I'm not saying it's over, but I am, I want us to look forward to what's next. Not that we're, we're done with the struggle, but to look forward, what exactly when where will God lead us? We should think about, plan for what's coming next. We can't just wait for everything to turn back to normal. We need to think about what is God doing now. And that's why these books show how incredibly relevant God's word is, because he spoke to his people then about 
what they should do, where they should head, the purpose that they have. And I believe he speaks to us as well. So let's see what God has to say to us in his word. If you're not already there, I encourage you to turn to the book of Ezra. Today we're going to look at Ezra chapters 1 and 2. Ezra 1 and 2, you can follow on your Bible or up on the screen. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read a couple verses from it. So if you're able, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's word and follow along as we read some verses from Ezra chapter 1 and chapter 2. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. I'm going to start by reading Ezra 1, verses 1 through 8. This is what God's Word says. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem." And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beast, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And then in verse five, then arose, then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priest and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. And then if you want to move a little bit or further down the page over to chapter 2, and pick up in verse 1, says, Now these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah each to his own town. I'm going to spare you by not reading chapter 2 because the list of names of all the people who came back. But if we skip ahead to the very end of the chapter, in verse 64, it says, The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. They had 200 male and female singers. And then finally, I'm going to read verses 68 through 70. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, they made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury. And then it says how much they gave. And verse 70 says, now the priest, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants lived in their towns. All the rest of Israel lived in their towns. Let's pray. 
God, thank you for your word, which is always relevant and sometimes impacts us in surprising ways. I pray that as we look at the mighty work you're doing in this passage, it would help us to see how you always keep your promises and how you stir hearts for your purposes. God, thank you that you move in us. You keep your promises to us and that we can rely on you and on your faithfulness. May we fall more in love with you, see more of you and your son in this text. It's in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now we're just starting to look at these books. And so at the very beginning in these two chapters, I think there's really two key truths about who God is that helps us to understand where we are and where we should be moving forward and what comes next. And our text reveals these. The first truth that our text reveals is that God keeps his promises. If you're using the outline that came in the bag, it's the first blank would be promises. God keeps his promises. He takes care of his people. In order to really understand this, though, I kind of need to give you the background of what this passage is about. Well, this is a passage in the Old Testament, so that's the first half of the Bible. And the whole Old Testament could be said to be a story about God revealing himself to one particular people. God chose to pick out one small group of people, the children of Abraham, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, to show himself to. And by showing himself and working in this tiny little nation, it showed how great his glory and power really is. The rest of the world could see there is something special about the God of these people. He had a very intimate, very powerful relationship with them. One of the very first things he does for this group of people is he brings them out of slavery in Egypt. They were in bondage for 400 years serving the pharaohs, but God brings them out of that slavery, and he takes them to a land that he promised them. And as he brings them to this land, he says that they can stay in this land if they obey his commandments. The book of Deuteronomy puts it this way. It says, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, this is their leader Moses speaking, if you love the Lord your God by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, And you will not hear, but you are drawn away to worship other gods and to serve them. Then I declare to you today, you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan River to enter and possess. God had every right to say this. This was a tiny group of people. They were slaves. He brought them out. So he can say, yes, this is our relationship. You do these things that I have asked, and you will be able to stay in this promised land. God gave it to them. They didn't earn it for themselves. We talked about this. It feels like it was last year, but it's actually been a year and a half, almost two years ago when we were studying through the book of Joshua. And in that book, it was about God bringing these people into the promised land. When they were there, they were ruled by leaders called judges, and then they had some kings. Unfortunately, they had some struggle inside themselves. They split into two different nations. But unfortunately, what this passage said came to pass. First one nation, and then the other rejected God, 
And God took them out of the promised land and sent them into exile. We're told why this happened. The book of 2 Kings puts it this way. It says, this occurred. They were removed from the promised land because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What did they do? They had feared, they had worshipped other gods. And the very last city to fall in the promised land was their capital city of Jerusalem. And it fell to an empire known as the Babylonians and a king, Nebuchadnezzar. And most of the people in that city were then taken away to exile. The wall of the city was broken down and the temple where they worshiped God. In the Old Testament, it was the one place they could be in God's presence. That temple was destroyed. They didn't have a place that they could worship God anymore. But God did promise that they would be able to return. One of his prophets who was around watching the city fall was named Jeremiah. This is what he says. Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, then I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise. I will bring you back to this place. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. If you spent time in the Bible or in a church, you may have heard that verse before, but this is the passage it's in. It's where God is telling his people he's going to bring them back to the promised land. And after 70 years, that's exactly what happened. The people returned to the promised land. And that is what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are about, the people coming back. Now, they didn't come back all at once, They came back in stages, in groups, for some and then more. In fact, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah talk about three groups of people that come back to the promised land. It starts with one. It was around the year 538 BC. One group of people comes back. Then about 80 years later, a priest named Ezra brings some more people back around 458 BC. And then finally, there's a uh, government official named Nehemiah. And he comes in about 445 B.C., 13 years later, with some more. And so this, these books of Ezra and Nehemiah were probably put together a little bit after that, sometime before 420 B.C. So there's three returns of God's people. They're coming back to Israel, to the land of Judah, to the city of Jerusalem. And so for the first few weeks, we're going to talk about that first return, this first group of people who comes back. So let's go back to our text, and let's see what it says about these people returning. Verse 1 talks about God fulfilling that prophecy. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that passage we just read, that it might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. He made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. He also put it in writing. The author is saying, this is a written document. You can go and you can look it up. You can see this is what this governing official, this king said that we could do. In fact, a little spoiler alert, a little bit later, that's exactly what's going to happen. They're going to have to go. They're going to have to look up this document to prove that's what the king said. It can be read. This can be verified. This actually happened. This king said this. It's called the Edict of Cyrus or the Cyrus Decree. 
It's in verses 2 through 4. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Verse 3, whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He tells the people to go up, go back to Jerusalem. Anyone who wants to, may God be with them. And not only did the prophets predict that this would happen, they even predicted who would say this. They named the person. They named this Cyrus. He was the first king of the Persian Empire. He's known as King Cyrus II or Cyrus the Great. But long before that, a prophet named Isaiah said this, He said that God says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Isaiah predicted that this man Cyrus would do it. The next chapter in Isaiah is a description about how God is going to aid him in his conquest. And that's what happened. This man Cyrus, his Persian empire conquered the Babylonians who took God's people into exile. Now, some hear that and they say, well, that must prove that Isaiah, or at least this part of Isaiah, was written long after these things happened. There's no way that Isaiah could have predicted who would be the person who would send God's people back. But if we trust in God's word and that it's true, we know that God controls the future and that he can very clearly put out a prophecy, a prediction that comes true. And if you want more proof of that, this is not the only prophecy he fulfills. Look at our text again in verses 7 and 8. It says, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels, the articles of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in charge of Mithridath, the treasurer. He counted them out to a man, Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now we may read over that and think, not think much of it, but what's happening is Cyrus is bringing out, giving to the Israelite people some articles, some vessels, some things that were used for worship in the temple. There's a list of them then in verses 9, 10, and 11. It's things like cups and bowls. They're items the Babylonians, when they conquered Jerusalem, they took back to their home. But Cyrus is now giving them back to God's people. The reason this is important is because the prophet said that this is what would happen. The prophet Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 27. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem. They shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. So this is at least 70 years before this happens that God says these things will come back. Now, you hear this, you may say, Pastor John, we're talking about cups and bowls. That that seems kind of boring. Why are we spending time on this? But think about what this would have meant to God's people. These were items they used as a part of their worship. They were part of how they approached God. And God is saying that he will bring these things back to them. We have stuff like like that. We don't have golden cups and bowls, but we have things that we use that are a part of how we're able to worship him. 
We have things like electricity that helps you to hear my voice through amplification or lights that bring up PowerPoints there. We have internet so that people are home who can watch. These are things, they're not essential. They're not necessary in that we are completely unable without them, but they're tools that are helpful for us in worshiping God. And God says he is going to even provide that for his people when they go back. He preserved what they needed to worship him. He provides for his people. He keeps his promises. Jeremiah also talked about the people coming back. He says in Jeremiah 32, God speaking says, Behold, I will gather them, my people, from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place. I will make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people and I will be their God. He predicted it. He said it was going to happen and then it did. God always does this. He always keeps his promises. You might remember when we studied the book of Joshua, a verse we kept coming back to is this one. Not one word of all the good promises the Lord made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. God does what he says he's going to do. He keeps his promises. Now, sometimes we doubt that. Sometimes we think, I know God has said he's going to do this, but it really doesn't feel like it right now. There's all this chaos, confusion in my life. I've been really struggling this week. It doesn't feel like God's keeping the promises that he's made. We think it maybe it's impossible for some of the things God has said to actually be true. But if we think that way, if we have that temptation in our mind, we should remind ourselves of this event in Ezra. The people were gone for 70 years, but God said they will be back. And so they came back. God kept his promises. One pastor whose uh, work I read through was named James Hamilton, and he had a couple good thoughts about this. One he says here is God will keep his word. And if that nail isn't already fixed in your thinking, then let Ezra place it. Let every testimony to it be like a hammer blow on that nail until it is firmly driven home. No human, no demon will ever dislodge it. God will keep his word. He kept it for his people here in Ezra and he will keep it for you. Or if you'd rather hear from scripture, the verse we read earlier, Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast, cling to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. God is faithful to his promises. He keeps his word. But what does this mean for us? What kind of promises should we trust God to keep for us? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. One promise we can trust God to keep is that he will work through his word, that he will work through scripture to draw people to him, to grow people in faith. If we share his word, he will work through it. He says in the book of Isaiah that as rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return but water the earth, they make it bring forth and sprout. They give seed to the sower, bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. If we share God's word with someone, God will use that for his purpose. We can trust God's word to do the work. That is a promise that God will fulfill. Another promise that God gives us is that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. 
book of Hebrews tells us to keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter how hard or dark life is, if we feel alone, we can say, wait a minute, God fulfilled his promise for the Israelites in Ezra. He will keep this promise to me too. Another promise that God says is that he will give us a way to escape, to avoid temptation, to get out of sin if we know him. We'll be tempted, but he will keep us from sin. He will provide a way for us. He says in 1 Corinthians 10 that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. With the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You think, God, I don't think I can withstand this sin, this temptation that's in front of me. God says, no, I've promised that there is a way of escape and I keep my promises. And in a dark, confusing year, God has also promised that things will not stay this way forever. And one day Jesus will return to reign and rule and to make all things right. In the book of Acts, some angels say to the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Christ will return. It's a promise from God and God keeps his promises. That's our role here. We are here to tell people about this promise-keeping God that has kept his word in the past, that keeps his word now, and will do it in the future. We tell others about this promise-keeping God. We show them the difference that he makes in our lives. Because this God not only keeps his promises, but he also works in our lives. And that's the second major truth we want to think about. God not only keeps his promises, but God stirs hearts. God stirs. He works in our hearts, our spirits, our souls for his purpose. He moves in our hearts, our spirits, to do his will. And there's two ways we're going to look at it. If you're looking at the outline, I have an A and a B. And the first is that God can stir the heart of anyone. He not only stirs hearts, but he can stir the heart of anyone. He can work through any person. No one is outside of God's reach. And again, there's uh, at least a few ways we see this in this text. The first big way we see is God can work through anyone, even someone in the highest position of authority. Let's look back at our text. I'm going to look here at verse 2. In verse 2, Cyrus is speaking. Cyrus, this king of Persia, he says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Cyrus here claims that God has charged, God has appointed him to build, to rebuild the temple, God's house in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. But then (laughs) look at verse 3. Cyrus says, whoever among you of his people, may his God be with him, let him go up to Jerusalem, rebuild the house of the Lord. Look what he says at the end. He says, he is the God who is in Jerusalem. Cyrus is not a true believer in God. In Cyrus's mind, the God that we worship just lives in the city of Jerusalem. So he's sending the people back just to build that temple there but he still orders it to be rebuilt. He even says in verse 4, let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of that place. He tells those who live near to help them. 
Now, why would this person who doesn't worship God, why in the world would he do this? Well, the Persian Empire and Cyrus were doing something different from what came before. Before this, what other empires would do is they would take over a country and they would take the people and they'd send them away. They'd split them up all over their empire. Their hope is that they would intermarry with different people. And so the empire would be all one people. They wanted to destroy the cultures they came over and make everybody the same as them. But the Persians were a little different. The Persians had a different thought. They thought, if you do that to people, you destroy their culture, you split them up, they're going to be mad at you. So what Cyrus and the Persians did was they sent people back to their homelands. They said, we know these other empires have taken you away, but we're going to send you home. Not only that, we're going to help you rebuild your temples and the gods you worship. We're going to rebuild all of that for you, or we're going to give you the means to do it. Now, they didn't do this because they were nice people. They did this because they expected loyalty from these people. When they sent them home, they said, we're going to send you home, but we expect you to pay your taxes and fight for us when we ask you to. So they wanted loyalty, but they still sent the people back. And Cyrus did this in other places. He doesn't just do this for the Israelites. There's a document called the Cyrus Cylinder, and this is Cyrus speaking, and this was one they found in the area of Babylon. He says, I resettled upon the command of Marduk, who was a Babylonian god. I, and he calls him the great lord. I resettled all the gods of Sumer and Akkad, whom the Babylonian king Nabadonis had brought into Babylon. He angered the lord of the gods, but I resettled them unharmed in their former chapels, the places which make them happy. So this is Cyrus writing to the Babylonians, and he's saying, hey, your god Marduk told me to send all these people back, so I did that, so you should like what I'm doing. It's the same thing he's doing here. He doesn't care about God. He's just looking out for himself. But what's amazing is what's actually happening here. Just because Cyrus does this for selfish reasons doesn't mean that God is not behind it. Remember, God promised that this would happen. God is so great, he can stir the heart, work through anyone, that he can work through the desire of this pagan king to restore the worship of him in the land of Israel, to return his people to his land. He worked through what he was already doing of sending other people home to send his people home. God didn't make Cyrus do anything he didn't want to do. It's not God completely changed his mind and said, I'm doing this, I'll do something else. No, God is so great he can work through the desires of somebody who doesn't know him to serve his purpose. Reminds me of the Old Testament proverb, which says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and God turns it wherever he wills. God can turn and direct the heart's of every king, every ruler, every leader, every president, every congressman, every governor, every judge, every authority is subject to God. And God can direct their decisions where he wants it to go. Now, some people read these words about Cyrus and they may tie them to particular politicians, say, well, this politician's like Cyrus or this politician's like Cyrus. I I don't think that's really helpful because I think as far as God is concerned, it doesn't matter who the person is. The point is God can work through them and his will will be done. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have a responsibility where we have influence, that we, can, uh, we have a responsibility to be involved in the political process. I'm not saying that that's gone, but it does mean 
we don't have to live in fear because God can work through whoever is in charge. We don't have to fear what, oh no, what might this person do? We don't have to live in that fear because God works through this pagan king. He can work through anyone else who's in charge. That Pastor James Hamilton said this, you see the rulers of this world and you fear the detrimental, the harmful effect that they could have on the gospel? Well, then seek the Lord to stir their hearts because he can do this great work. Brothers and sisters, God will accomplish his purposes in ways that are more grand, mysterious, and wonderful than we can possibly imagine. There is no politician and no political party that can stop God's will. He will change hearts and minds as he wills and he determines. And when God wills it, he can do the impossible. We do not have to doubt him or doubt his plan. So this passage, these words about Cyrus, it's not a passage for us to argue about. It's comfort that we can have at all times. God is in control all the time. He can stir the heart of anyone. So he can stir the heart of rulers and authorities, but God can even stir the hearts of people who don't know him. He can stir the hearts of unbelievers for his purposes. We see this multiple times in the Bibles, but we saw it twice in our passage. Cyrus said, let each survivor be assisted by the men of his place. If we look then in verse 6, it says, all who were about God's people aided them with vessels of silver, gold, goods, beasts, costly wares, besides all that that was freely offered. Unbelievers and fellow Jews, they donate to the cause of the Jews going to rebuild the temple. They donate things like silver, gold, goods, and supplies, beasts, livestock, costly wares, valuable gifts, precious things. And this is not the first time this has happened for God's people. If you go back to when God brought his people out of slavery, this is what he says in the book of Exodus. He says, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. When you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry, for clothing that you shall put on your sons and daughters. God says, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And then that's what happens. When they're about to leave, they ask for these items and they're given them before they leave. The Egyptians, the unbelievers, give them these things. As crazy as it sounds, God sometimes stirs the hearts of unbelievers to donate or otherwise support the cause of God. That, that shouldn't happen, but sometimes it does because God can stir the heart of anyone. But in a more important I think a grander way, God can stir the hearts of unbelievers to draw them to him so that they come to know him. Again, for the last time, James Hamilton said, look at the influence the Lord has. Are there members of your family who are not interested in building the church, the temple of the Holy Spirit? Then ask the Lord to stir their hearts. Tom shared about this year. We're doing a campaign this year. Who's your one? Challenging you to pray for one person for 30 days to share God's truth with them. So pray, maybe use this language. Pray, God, this is the person I'm praying for. I pray that you will stir their heart so that they will see their need for you and that they would come to know you, that they would come to recognize the truth of the gospel, the good news, that Jesus lived a life for them that they couldn't live, that he died to pay a penalty that they couldn't pay, and that he rose to new life so that they could have new life 
with you. We pray, we ask God to reveal that to him. That doesn't take the responsibility off us to share, but it acknowledges that God alone is the one who can stir and change their heart. No matter how many persuasive words we use, only God changes hearts. So we should ask him to do that. Trust him to do it. And then go and share in that boldness that God will be the one who changes their hearts. And that kind of connects to the very last point of the text, which is not only can God stir the heart of anyone, but God in particular stirs the hearts of his people. God can stir the heart of his people. And we read that here. Many in the community are stirred to go back to the promised land. Look at verse 5 in our passage. It says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. They prepared, they rise up, and they go back. They have a purpose. They're going to rebuild God's temple. Now, not all of them go back. We read the number. It was just 42,000. There was way more than that. Some of them, some of them stayed where they were. Some of them were comfortable. After all, they had lived in Babylon or wherever they were in exile for at least 70 years. If you or your family had lived in one house for 70 years, your parents had lived there, you lived there, maybe your grandparents, and then all of a sudden you're said to leave, that may be a hard thing to do. They were comfortable there. They built their lives, their businesses, their reputation there. They didn't want to leave to go back to a city with broken down walls and that doesn't even have a temple there. But that's where God wanted them to be. And some are stirred. They desire to be a part of God's kingdom work in the promised land. And so some family units decide to go. That's a challenge. I don't know if I could leave my home of 70 years to go somewhere. Would I go when God calls where he says this is where the need is? In many ways, this is like a new exodus. God is bringing his people out of somewhere they didn't want to be, and he's bringing them out of bondage back to the promised land. We already said, just like the exodus, they received gifts from those around them, and now God is giving his people a fresh start. And so then we have chapter 2, which I'm not going to spend as much time in because it's mainly just a list of the people who went back to the promised land, those whose hearts were stirred to go back to what God was doing. This same list will then reappear later in Nehemiah 7. The reason they have this is because it was important for them to keep track of who was a part of their community. They wanted to worship God rightly. It tells us the leaders that are here. I don't have this on the screen, but verse 2 talks about leaders named Zerubbabel and Jeshua, a priest. They were the guys who were in charge. Zerubbabel appears to have replaced whoever the first leader named Sheshbazar. If you read through the names, you might see names and you're like, oh, hey, this name sounds familiar, but it's just because some names are similar to other places. You'll read about a Nehemiah or a Mordecai. It's not the Nehemiah or Mordecai you might know elsewhere from the Bible. But if you look at this, you may think, well, Pastor, I'd love to read through the Bible, but that chapter 2 is really hard. Why does God have something like this here? Well, I think at the very least God has it because he cares for individuals. God knows each of these people and each of these families just the same way that he knows you and me. He cares for individuals. And many of these people were needed to rebuild the temple, to serve in the temple. 
If you read through the list, you'll see people like priests, like singers, like gatekeepers, like temple servants that are needed in the promised land. God stirred the hearts of many kinds of people. He stirred the hearts of all the people that he needed for his purposes. And I'm sure they felt blessed to be included in this list. But before I brush over it, there's one kind of odd section near the end of it that I think has something interesting that we can see. This is verses 59 through 63. Let me read a couple of the verses there. 59 says that it's normally, it says a person's name and then how many people there are, and that's it. But it says here, the following were those who came up from Telmela, Telharsha, Cherub, Adon, Immer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. And then it lists some of them. And it also says that some of these people in verse 61, also there were some sons of the priest, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz. Think about that name, Hakaz, sons of Barzillai. And then verse 62 tells us that these sought their registration among those enrolled in their genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. And the governor told them they were not to partake to eat the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. So what's going on here? There's other families who want to be a part of what God is doing. But these families cannot prove that they were descended from the Israelites. Even though some of them claimed to be priests, they'd not kept a careful record of their genealogy. And this is important because God had said in the Old Testament further back that it's only the descendants of the priest who could eat the food that was dedicated for them. The book of Leviticus says it this way, they shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord. If they do this, they cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things. God says, I am the Lord who sanctifies them and makes them holy. These families had not kept their careful records. And so the people who were Israel needed to determine if they were who they said they were. The governor said they should not eat the holy food until a priest could ask for God's will. That's the verse there that Urim, Thummim, those were tools used to discover God's will in the Old Testament. But look at what's happening here. The reason the Israelites were kept out of the promised land is because they weren't obeying God. But here we see they're starting to recommit to that. They're looking at this and they're saying, these are people we don't know where they're from, but we know God has said they're not supposed to eat the holy food. So we are concerned about honoring God. So they should wait until we figure out what's going on with them. They are actually starting to honor and live for the Lord. And if we piece together some clues from some of the other books, we see that they must have followed through with this. And at least some of these families were accepted. Here's two verses that are real tiny in details, but they kind of reveal this to us. Later in Nehemiah, there's a man named Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz. That, and that was one of the families that was listed in that passage. But in Ezra, we hear that on the fourth day within the house of God, the silver, the gold vessels were weighed. They were given to the hands of Merimoth, the priest, the son of Uriah. So this man must have been made a priest. They must have heard from God that, yes, these families can be priests. But look what happened here. These families had not kept their careful records. They hadn't been living for the Lord, honoring him when they were in exile. They needed someone else to come to bring them into God's kingdom. And you know, friends, the same is true for us today. 
We can't bring ourselves into God's kingdom, no matter how many records we keep of our rights and wrongs. Only Jesus can bring us into God's kingdom. He died for that reason, so that we could be brought into God's people. It's not something we earn for ourselves. He died to pay so we could come to him. If you don't know him, I would encourage you to turn from your sin. Leave behind the ways you rejected him. Instead, believe, trust in what he did for you to bring you into his kingdom. The conclusion we looked at before, this whole group of people who come back, verse 64 says the whole assembly together was 42,360, plus some servants and others. That's not all the people who are listed here. Perhaps they didn't include some children, or maybe it's just the major families. But even still, this is just 42,000 people. That may sound like a lot, but that's really not a lot of people. That's, that's a really small group to restart this whole country and this whole worship of God. It seems small and ineffective, but we're reading about it. Their influence is still felt today. And maybe you look and you think, church doesn't seem as big as it used to be. Church doesn't be doing as much as it used to do. But God still works through his church. We looked at verse 68, when the people came back, some of them were led to give to God's work. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord, they made free will offerings for the house of God so they could erect it on its site. They were give, stirred to give to God's work. And God's people have always been stirred this way, to give freely, voluntarily. I think my mic's got an in and out. Uh, but God's people were stirred to give to his work. It was back in the tabernacle, or in the temple. When they first built a tabernacle to worship God, in the book of Exodus, it says that the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And then later when they built a temple, the leaders of the father's houses made free will offerings, as did the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands, hundreds, the officers the, over the king's work. Whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord. The people rejoiced because they'd given willingly, for with a whole heart they offered freely to the Lord. God stirred their heart to give, and the same thing happened in our passage. Friends, I know that it's been... Uh, it's been a couple very, very long and confusing years for us as a church family. There's been a lot of hardship, a lot of transition. But now we're at this place where we're back together. We've gone through some stages of transition. And I feel like, like the Israelites, God is giving us a fresh, a new start as a church. But the question is, will we take this opportunity to commit to knowing obeying and being led by him. As God's word says, it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We don't accomplish it alone, but as God works through us, as he stirs our hearts for his purposes. So let me ask you, is God stirring your heart today? I don't know exactly what that is. I can't look in your individual heart and see how God's working on, in you. Maybe he's calling you, calling us to know him more. Maybe he wants to spend more time with you. 
Maybe he's calling you to something else. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about a literal voice from heaven necessarily. God saying, go do this, do that. I'm talking about God moving in our hearts so that we live more for him. Maybe you feel you need to pray more fervently. That God's on you. I, I need to be spending more time in prayer with him. Maybe you are feeling stirred. I need to share the gospel, the good news more frequently. Maybe you feel I need to be more intentional in talking about God with my family or with my loved ones, whether they're believers or unbelievers, but talking with our family so that we are more focused on God together. Maybe your heart is stirred. You feel I need to be more involved in church or in the larger community. I need to be serving God more in some way. I don't know how God is stirring you, but I pray that we would each ask ourselves, what is God doing in our hearts? And I pray that as we seek to grow together, we trust the God who keeps his promises and who can stir the heart of anyone because he's worthy of that kind of trust.